if you have your Bible right now, you can turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, which you'll find right before the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. The one right before that is the book of Jude. It is 25 verses long, uh, one chapter. We're only going to read six of those verses this morning right at the end of the book. As we close out our series on God is able, we've been talking about this phrase that's over my head, this phrase that was stamped on the building uh, that we're in when it was, uh, the designs were made, God is able. That is the phrase that Valley Bible Church used for many years, and we, as uh, we see ourselves in line with them, we see ourselves in the next phase of what God is doing at 18th Street in Osborne. And what a wonderful gift that he's given to us. We want to continue in that same vein. God is able. That's not a phrase that that church made up. It's a phrase that we find throughout the scriptures and these beautiful passages where it says, God is able. God is powerful. We could translate it. He is able to do things that we are not able to do. And we have a beautiful benediction at the end of the book of Jude that shows us that he is able to keep us. The book of Jude is written, um, you know, it's just 25 verses long. That's how, that's how we think of it. Of course, Jude just wrote a letter, a shorter letter. And um, he's talking about those that are leading others astray. And he, he talks about contending for the faith and staying strong in what has been delivered. He says, it's okay that you're receiving all this persecution because the apostles predicted this. This is what happens when we get further and further away from Christ. False teachers are going to come in. And so he says, but here's, here's what you should do. If you wait to the end of the book, you see what his uh, philosophy is for us to contend for the faith. And many of us don't know anything about the book of Jude. In fact, when we say the word Jude, it just reminds us of the Beatles song, uh, Hey Jude. And um, actually, if you know the chorus of that, that you know, take, takes a sad song and make it better. That's what John Lennon said. Actually, it's not a bad way to understand the book of Jude. Uh, not that he intended to say that to us uh, in, in the Beatles song. But this sad song of apostasy and challenge, he actually makes better with what he says right here at the end. Let's read in verse 20 to the end of the book. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I need some kids in the room uh, to help me out with something because uh, I want to talk about Finding Nemo. Remember that uh, Disney Pixar movie? I'm sure that you do. Nemo is, is lost in the deep blue sea. This young fish, he's, he's lost his way and Marlin, his dad, is looking for him. 
Along the way, they meet a, an optimistic bluefish. What's, what's her name? Dory. Dory, thank you. Now, Dory has something that she likes to say a lot, and it's kind of like a worldview for her. So the way that she looks at the world, and she actually sings it over and over again when she's scared, and she sings it to Marlon when he's looking for uh, his son. What does she say? She says, just what? A little louder? Keep swimming. I don't think that was a child in the room, but that's all right. <laughs> Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. It's a command, if you think about it. Just keep swimming. But she doesn't say it like harshly, does she? She says, just keep swimming. She says it in a happy tone of voice. It's a command but it's a loving command. And actually, behind the command is a whole worldview. There's a whole conviction. And the conviction, we might say, is something like this, if you think about it. The ocean may be big. Your son may be lost, but the ocean is interconnected. All the different life forms and the plants and the fish. And if you just stay diligent to this command, this gentle command, just keep swimming, it may be dangerous and it may be frustrating, and you, but, but at the end of the day, you're more than likely to find what you're seeking if you just keep swimming. Even something as small as this tiny fish, this Nemo. I laughed when I heard the title for the first time, whatever it was, 15 or 20 years ago when this movie came out. That's the Latin word for nobody. Nemo, no one. Finding no one in the ocean. He's so small. He's so insignificant. How in the world would you find this fish? Well, you root your action, might say in this worldview, in a philosophy, just keep swimming, with the conviction that by faith, right, this ocean will show you what you need to see. Now, it's different, but there's something similar happening in this passage in Jude. There is a gentle command, and then we're told that it's rooted in something. We're told to keep doing something. We're not told to keep swimming, but we're told to keep ourselves in God's love. Keep yourself in the love of God. But the thing that it's rooted in is not in a hope that maybe it will work out. The thing that it's rooted in is because he alone is able to keep you. Keep yourself in God's love because he keeps you. The whole book of Jude, we could say, is on this theme, starting in the very first verse when Jude introduces himself, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are called, he says, beloved in God the Father, and so far as I know, the only time in the scriptures where this phrase is used, kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for, or maybe kept by, Jesus. These are the saints. That is their identity. They are called and they are kept. They are held by God in Jesus Christ. And so, just a few verses later, when he gives us this command, don't forget where it started. 
those who are kept for Jesus, now keep yourselves in the love of God. Why again? To go full circle in the last two verses, because God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. We are kept, and yet we are commanded. The gentle command to us is to keep ourselves in God's love, which is rooted in this conviction, God is the one who can keep us until the end. Keep yourselves because you were kept. There's three things I want us to look at that we need to keep doing. First, we need to deal with our own responsibility and our own call here, the command to us, keep taking responsibility for your own soul. Keep taking responsibility for your own soul. This is what he says in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, I don't often talk about grammar. I don't think it's usually that helpful, but here's one time where it really is helpful to talk about how these two verses are constructed. There is one command, and again, we've already said it's a gentle command, but there's one command in this passage, one imperative, and there are three participles. That is, there are three things that support this one imperative. The command to us at the center of this is to keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now around that, there are three descriptions of how you do that by building up your most, yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could read those as supporting that one thing. How you keep yourself in the love of God is by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit and by waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus. That is what it means, in other words, to keep yourself in the love of God. Let's look at those phrases more closely. He says, first, by building yourself up in your faith. Your faith has a floor and your faith has a ceiling, in other words. There is really no ceiling to our faith. I mean, God is eternal and we can always grow deeper into who he is, but the floor is the foundation. This is the basics of the faith. And by the way, you don't need a lot of faith to believe in Jesus and to have saving faith. Jesus himself says you need the faith of a mustard seed. That's all you need to be right with God and the kingdom is yours. That is the floor, that is the foundation and the foundation is important. You must have faith. But he says, it's not enough to persevere if you just have the floor. He says, actually, you need to be building yourselves up in your most holy faith, being careful not to become stagnant. What does it mean to build yourself up in your faith. Remember, this is dependent on that main idea, to keep yourself in the love of God. And so whatever it means, it must mean something that we can consistently do to be in his love. We might ask ourselves, what can I do 
to consistently be in his love, to progress in my faith, which means progressing further into his love. How do you remind yourself? How do you feed yourself? Do you have scripture passages that you return to? Do you have an intentionality with your life with God? Is there a structure to it? What is your life building towards? If you were to look at the sum of the actions, what is it building? It's always building something. Are you building up in the faith? There is no ceiling. We cannot outrun God's love. We can't go deeper into God's love and reach the end. The scriptures are clear that God's love is immeasurable. The faith is deeper than any of us can imagine or even think. And yet we can build ourselves up even more in this deep faith. I want to pause for a second and just say what's kind of behind this statement of building yourself up in your most holy faith is this idea that spiritual growth is one's own responsibility. That's something that we don't emphasize enough sometimes is that we are called by God to build ourselves up in the faith. And there are plenty of commands in scripture about helping one another, and we're gonna to get to some of those in just a minute. And there's plenty of commands about faithful pastors and good ministries and you know, teaching and all kinds of things that are important. But let's not skip over this, that Jude tells us that building our faith up comes down to responsibility of ourselves. Build yourselves up in your faith. So we ask ourselves gently, how are we taking responsibility for this? Building up our faith. Praying, he says, in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. We cannot keep ourselves in God's love without ever communicating with God. It doesn't make sense that we would have a life in God without a life of prayer. Because it's in prayer that we receive God's love. There is no other way other than in communication with him. But he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Why in the Spirit? Why? Well, it's the Spirit who teaches us about the love of God. It's the Spirit who reminds us of our adoption, that we've been brought into the family of God. It's the Spirit of God who groans with us when we don't have the words to say that even prays to the Father on our behalf because our words fail. It's the Spirit, the Scripture says, who gives us boldness before the throne of God. It's that confidence before him. So in short, we pray in the Spirit because that's where the power of the Christian life is. It's in the spirit. It's not found anywhere else. But our prayer lives so often are not a reflection of staying in God's love. They're often a reflection of tasks, lists, other people. Again, a good thing. But prayer isn't meant to simply be those things. When we pray, we ought to slow down enough to realize that God loves us. That's why it's dependent on this main thing. Keep yourself in God's love. He assumes that praying often would mean that you experience the love of God in prayer. So it's not so burdensome to stay in God's love 
in prayer. It's like talking to a spouse or a loved one. We all know the difference between functional communication, the things that you have to say to get the day moving. Will you be there for this? Can you pick up that kid from there? There's all kinds of functional communication that goes on, but all of us know that at the end of the night, if you say, can we just have 30 minutes to talk together, that there's a different kind of communication that happens. And it's deeper and it's better. The other may be necessary from time to time, but there is a necessity for us communing in love with the Father. That we would pray in the Holy Spirit to keep ourselves in God's love, not just as a duty, not just as a practice, but as the love of God fills us that we need this. To commune with him is wonderful to our souls. To be reminded of him saying to you, I love you. And to keep yourself there for just a few minutes. The third part of keeping ourselves in God's love is waiting. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Christians are people who wait. And in waiting, we move toward God in love. Why? Because when we're waiting on something, it causes us to lean in faith on him, to trust him. And some of you are waiting. All of us are waiting for something, whether we're conscious about it or not. We're waiting in faith for something, for the mercy of Jesus, to be delivered from pain. We're waiting for a loved one to recognize us or to come back to us. We're waiting for a spouse. We're waiting on something. Do you experience the love of God in your waiting? Because God is there. One might say from Jude, God is especially there. Or do we keep our spiritual life separate from our waiting? Draw a separation. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Okay, now I need to go do my Bible reading. Like now, okay. But what consumes our minds is what we're waiting on. When we wait in God, we see him at work. Even if it's not solving all of our problems, even if it's slow and gradual, he sends gifts Little gifts by the Spirit. He relieves small sufferings. He opens up new doors to insights. It's in the waiting that we see that we have faith at all. It's not when things are so good and everything is just normal. Not that any of us ever experienced that, right? It's more than for just a minute. But when we drop out of that feeling of like this, things are going well, that's actually the place where we meet God. It's waiting for him where we have faith in reality. So he says this gentle command, keep taking responsibility for your soul. That is to say that you have a responsibility to be in the love of God as much as you can. It builds your faith. It keeps you praying and communicating with him and it teaches you how to wait faithfully. The second thing that we're told to keep doing is keep walking with others and their struggles. This is not an individual journey that we're on at this journey of faith and building ourselves up and keeping ourselves in God's love, we need to help others stay in their faith. Look at verse 22 and 23 with me. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy, 
with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is talking about how we interact with those who are stumbling. And there's three groups that he addressed. First, it's the doubting. Have mercy on those who doubt. What does it mean to have doubt? Literally, the word means to have an argument within oneself. That there's something warring inside of us, that I want to believe this, but I don't really believe it right now, or I'm wondering if I do. For the doubter, nothing is quite settled. We need to normalize, as Jude does, doubt. Because for the majority of Christians, doubt will be a sometimes, and for others, even a often experience of their Christian life. It will be a regular stumbling block for some and an occasional stumbling block for others, and rarely will it not be a stumbling block for anyone. Do we know someone who doubts? Are we doubting? What does the scripture say is the prescription? Mercy. Have mercy. Have compassion, we could say. So in other words, the doubter in your life, whether it's yourself or someone else, doesn't primarily need your arguments, your judgments, your corrections, even though those things may be appropriate at certain times. They don't primarily need that. They need your compassion because doubting is hard. It's hard when you're caught in this place of wanting to believe something but struggling to believe it. I have a friend who um, has a story from when he was in youth group, he, a class that he was in, and he had some huge question. Maybe it was about you know how God could allow suffering or something like that. He asked a hard question, and basically the the leader or the pastor, whoever it was, basically made it clear that those kinds of questions aren't welcome here, and and it caused a decade long. He identified that moment as a decade long walk away from the Lord, and he's back with the Lord. But he was doubting. He wasn't in unbelief. He was doubting. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Sometimes it can lead to unbelief, but it is not the same. Doubting is, for the majority of Christians, something that will be an occasional or regular stumbling block. Mercy is needed for those who doubt. Second, he addresses those who are giving up. He says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And some have moved from doubting to giving up, and they need a different kind of help. If you've been around the church, you know that this is the case, that you've seen this happen. And those who start to wonder, and then they leave. What are we to do? Do our best to snatch them back. Beg them to watch, walk away from the ledge. And perhaps this is you. Again, I assume this morning that some of us are in doubt this morning and some of us are close to giving up. I don't want to snatch you back because there is a tipping point where doubt is just unbelief. Where, And how do you know what that is? Whether you're staying in God's love, you're staying with his people and you're staying in his truth even though you doubt it. That's when you know, when you've walked away, when you say, I've got to figure this out outside of God, rather than bringing God into the waiting, into the struggle, into the hard things. That's the time that he is merciful 
and compassionate, and the church should be too. But the moment that we say, I'm walking away from the church and I'm walking away from my friends and my faith until I can figure it out and then maybe I'll put it back in, that's no longer doubt. That's walking into the fire. For the third group, it's those who are caught in sin. This is those that need to show mercy to others with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. It says those who are caught in sin, it's the same thing but with a twist, the same thing as those who doubt. Show mercy, he says. Have compassion, but with fear. We don't kick people out because of their sin, yet we also recognize that sin is a manipulative thing and even a spreading thing, and it can harm the church. We acknowledge that we could be pulled into sin, and we can be pulled into calling things sin that God calls, or not sin, that God calls sin. And so there's a, there's a danger there. Be careful, he says. You should still hate the garment stained by the flesh. You should still not you know, give in to saying that things are not sin, but at the same time, show mercy. It's a hard thing to do. This is what we're called to walk in for others is to say, are they doubting? We've got to show mercy. Are they, are they, are they trapped? Well, we've got to show mercy, but we've got to be careful with our lines and draw them well. Are they giving up? We've got to snatch them back. This is hard. In your mercy, he says, don't become desensitized to sin because it's still sin. All this is to say to us this morning that to keep ourselves in God's love, we must keep ourselves, but we also need each other. The Christian life is about taking proper responsibility for oneself and also for your neighbor, for your, for your family, for others. We keep each other from stumbling. But... Neither of those things that I've been talking about is of any value whatsoever without this third piece. It's what we started with this morning. The third thing is to keep trusting that God himself will keep you. Jude starts out the book, remember, those who are kept by Christ. And he ends the book by saying, Now to him who is able to keep you. He bookends his letter with this truth. It is God's ability to keep us that means that we stay with him. So the scripture says we need to keep ourselves and we need to realize that it's only God who keeps us. And how does this work? This logic is so important for understanding the scriptures. It is everywhere. Let me give you a couple of other examples of how this works out in scripture. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says this, therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or I thought about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, which says this. Paul says, think on what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
Work, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Think on what I say, and God will give you the understanding. God enables our obedience. This is the logic of the scripture. He gives us what is necessary for us to be faithful to him. We cannot do it without him. But still, our obedience matters. But it doesn't matter because it's all on us. It matters because it's the proper reflection of what God has done. And this is the good news that God gives us, the gospel. From start to finish, it's God who works in us. He keeps us from stumbling. He presents us blameless. How does he do that? Look at the passage here, this beautiful benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. Look at this key phrase, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that God is able to keep us. Why is that? Because Jesus is the spotless lamb. And we are kept only because of his great transfer. We received his righteousness and he received our sin. This one in whom God was pleased. He entered into this sinful world, was crucified for our sin and raised, the scripture says, for our justification. This is what happened. And that is through this, through Jesus Christ and what he has done, that we are kept and presented blameless before the presence of his glory. And how does God do this? With what emotion does he do this? Is it through gritted teeth? Is he resigned to do what he promised to do? No, he says he does it with great joy. With great joy, God has kept us in Jesus Christ. We have a newborn uh, infant, Townsend, and he's only two and a half, coming up on three months old. Um, and he's just starting to acknowledge us. He's been too young, too, too immature. If you're a, a parent, you know that one of the real joys of the first few months of having a newborn is when they start uh, looking at you, <laughs> you know, making eye contact. Now, he couldn't, and now he can. What has changed in our relationship? We have been keeping him. We've been feeding him. We've been putting him to bed. We've been changing him. We are making sure that he has what he needs, regardless of whether he acknowledges us or not. Whether he acknowledges us or not, he will be kept. But there is great joy in the acknowledgement. Now he knows. It's not random things that are happening to me that are making me well. It is a person who cares for me and loves me and who sees me and I see him or her when he looks at my wife. This is the way that God works there is great joy in the acknowledgement. God has been keeping you. The reason that you are where you are, the reason that you have what you have, the reason that you are sustained right now in any possible way is because he keeps you. He does not need your acknowledgement. 
but he delights in it. And he knows that your joy will be greater if you keep yourself in his love. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Again, I want to just return to a few questions for your reflection as we close. Looking at what it means here to keep yourself in the love of God, what surrounds it, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Ask yourself this, what's the next step in gently building up my faith? Have I been stagnant? Have I been not really doing anything intentional? What's the next step in the gently, it's important, says keep yourself in his love. Don't keep yourself in his, you know, mechanics and commands and all these, this is, this is his love. But you will be built up if you keep yourself in his love. Second, you could ask yourself, looking at that phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit. How would my prayer life change if it included delighting in God's love for me as well as whatever else it is? And it may be nothing. It may be the first step in a life of prayer that you've had in a long time but to build that first step towards not just what do I need to do, but how can I experience God's love? Keep myself there for a few minutes, at least every day. The third question you could ask is this, how is God present in my waiting? There's not a single person who isn't waiting on something to happen, a change of heart, a change of direction, a loved one, a desire, a pain to be relieved, a child to come back. There is just on and on. We are waiting people. How is God present in my waiting? Or do I tend to treat him like he's outside of it? We keep ourselves in God's love. And now we bring those insights and that, that, com- that compassion that is in God's love into the church into our relationships with others. Where this is a place, by God's mercy, that we are compassionate with one another and help each other in the love of God. This is a place where you can doubt. And there's mercy. We don't expect people to be in the same place or to arrive at the same place on a predictable timeline, by the way. If you've gotten that impression, it's not our intent. Where you are is where you are. We have mercy because we've been there. This is a place where we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the mercy of God is on full display, where God is glorified. Because without him keeping us in his love, we're hopeless. But if his love is holding us, as Jude has assured us it is, then it's, we're trusting not in ourselves. We're trusting in his ability. God is able to keep you and to present you blameless. If you're trusting in him, then you are kept. Let's pray. Father, would we hear your word as the gentle call 
just keep in my love. We would receive this duty as a delight. We would see our life in you as truly life-giving. That you are meeting our needs, that you are satisfying our thirst and our hunger. And that you are already doing the work previous. Keeping us in your love so that we can keep coming back to you. Help us to keep Jesus at the center, trusting it's through Jesus Christ that we are kept. And it's him that we honor, it's him that we turn to, and him that we feed upon by faith as we come to your table. We ask that you would give us yourself to strengthen and nourish us in the inner person so that we would know and believe that we are kept. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.